Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast in Radio Free Mormon. Uh, RFM, how's it going this morning? It is going super well. Thank you so much, Bill. Excited to do this podcast with you. Wonderful. Uh, we are sitting here at uh, 6.53 Radio Free Mormon time, 7.53 Mormon discussion time. And uh, we wanted to tackle today, uh, Stephen Harper recently did a video for the church where the topic is how to answer questions about church history. Uh, before uh, RFM and I jump into this conversation, we thought we'd set it up uh, with the introduction from the video itself. So, as RFM always says, uh, roll the tape. Welcome to Gospel Solutions for Families. I'm your host, Amy Iverson. Maybe you've had some deep and lingering questions about church history. Maybe you've had family members who seem to have unresolved questions about events in the church's past. Or maybe you've heard things about church history and haven't known where to look for information and context. If you're in one of these groups, you'll be interested in this episode. All right, so she introduces the topic, which is this idea of answering church questions and the idea, uh, RFM, that there are questions out there and that family and friends are struggling. Uh, I, I, I will tell you, and I want to get your two cents, but I'll tell you, at first, when you first play this, you're like, all right, great, the church is going to address some hard issues, and they've got Stephen Harper on, and he knows the church history, so we're in store here for, I think, an opportunity to see some transparency in the church, right? Well, I think it is extremely revealing that they are even having this interview in the first place, Bill. I know you've been a member of the church a long time. You've been a bishop. I've never been a bishop. So you've got total Mormon street cred over me. But I've been a member for 40 years, and I have never, ever heard of, a, of an interview about answering church history questions being played and produced for the members of the LDS Church. So this is monumental, and I think it signals what's going on in the background, which is more and more the church is realizing that droves of people are leaving the church. And one of the main reasons that they're leaving the church is because they're encountering negative information about church history, and they've ignored it as long as they possibly can, and they've been pushed into the corner now of actually trying to produce things which are at least theoretically supposed to address those issues. Yeah, and I'll add to it, this is right in the midst of Elder Quentin Cook, member of the Quorum of the Twelve, announcing uh, his upcoming face-to-face conversation with the the young people of the church where he is sitting in the Grandin print shop and telling people that his topic is also going to be addressing church history and for people to throw as many questions at him as possible. You and I know, I mean, I, I, at least my assumption is going to be that this is going to be uh, just like every other time where they only throw out the soft questions that they're going to answer. But at the very least, they've made a space for people to ask tough questions on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, uh, not as many on the LDS.org uh, page for this this event, but at least in social media, people are throwing, I think, like all the hard questions out. It'll be interesting to see if he fields any of those. Another thing too, uh, RFM, is that um, recently there's been several articles in both LDS.org about supporting your spouse in a mixed faith marriage, as well as LDS Magazine ran an article titled uh, "Are Droves Leaving the Church?" And the the article is kind of snarky. It kind of says like, "We don't see any droves. We've looked outside. There's no droves going down the street." 
But they also then spend the rest of the article telling the audience that, yes, you're seeing people leave. You're seeing them leave in numbers much larger than you saw before, um, which I think is at least, while subtle, some type of admittance that something is going on. And while they blame those who leave for leaving and, and never put any of that accountability on the church, the fact, as you point out, that these conversations are taking place shows that the church's focus is deeply on the fact that people are walking out the door. Right. And that comment from the uh, magazine article that you referenced about, we don't see droves leaving the church and that kind of snarkiness, which is really not being uh, forthright and honest and transparent, reminds me of the comment Joseph Smith made back in Nauvoo, I believe it was, when he claims that he's being accused of having seven wives and here he can find only one. Meanwhile, the other 26 of them are probably within 35 yards of him. Yes, he was looking very <laughs> narrowly at only one of those women at the time he was speaking. The only one that wasn't there was Fanny Alger because she left town. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that uh, also what you're talking about is referenced here in this opening introduction by the interviewer when she says, maybe you have questions about church history. Maybe you have family members who are struggling with questions about church history. And I think that shows, well, really what the reality is. If you are not struggling, if you are not struggling with church history questions yourself, odds are you're going to have a family member or know someone close to you who is. And then she goes on and says, if you don't know how to look for information about this to answer your questions, well, that's why we're producing this video and this interview with Stephen Harper from the church history department. What ends up happening, however, is that this lead up given by the interviewer, which I would expect was probably done maybe after the interview was over. Uh, I don't know when it was done. All I know is that it has little to nothing to do with what is actually talked about in the interview. Because when I hear the interview, I don't hear anything about where to look for information to answer your questions. It's titled, uh, How to Answer Questions About Church History, and I don't really see any information about how to answer questions about church history in the entire interview. Yeah, and you're going to find as we jump right into this first clip that there's already some smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand happening. So let's, uh, let's go to this introductory uh, section, or, uh, section here by uh, Stephen Harper. I recently sat down with Steve Harper from the Church Historical Department to talk about how he became interested in church history and the principles and habits he uses to seek out information and how the discovery of church history has been, for him, as Lord Acton says, an illumination of his soul. So Steve, I think that church history is a unique profession to go into. And I'm just kind of wondering what piqued your interest um, in this field. You know, I, I got interested in it long before I thought I was actually interested in it. Uh, as a teenager, I would have thought it was the most boring possible thing sure. to do. But at the same time, I remember a pretty vivid conversation I had with my father one morning. I was 14, and we were sitting at the breakfast table, and the church news for May 15th, I think, 1985. Oh, wow, okay. Not positive that's the date. I know it was May 85. It was sitting there in front of us, and in this issue, the reason it's so memorable 
is because there is a letter in it, a purported letter published from Joseph Smith to Josiah Stowell. It's not a real letter. It turned out to be a forgery, but at the time, no one knew that. So it's printed on the church news and it catches your eye at breakfast. Right. At 14. Okay. Right. And the letter is interesting. It uh, talks about what today we would call maybe a magic wand, but in the, in the time of Joseph Smith was called a rod, a divining rod. And it was Joseph Smith faked by the forger telling Josiah Stoll how to find the right kind of hazel rod or branch and how to cut it so that he could use it to find buried treasure. So you so can that's imagine. interesting for a 14-year-old. I was thinking, <laughs> is this your breakfast reading, not the back of the cereal box? But <laughs> Yeah, uh, typically the back of the cereal box would have been the, the far limit of my yeah. engagement, but uh, it definitely caught my attention. And I remember asking my dad something like, why don't they teach me this at church? Yeah, this is fascinating. Yeah. I was a bit flippant about it. Um, First off, it's really interesting the way the interviewer wants to frame this. She quotes at the beginning and again at the end, I think, this quote I'd never heard of before from Lord Acton about how uh, Stephen Harper's study of church history is, quote, an illumination of his soul. Unquote. Well, that's a phrase that Stephen Harper never uses. And in fact, everything that he says in the interview is exactly the opposite of that. He doesn't say that church history has been an illumination to his soul. In fact, what he says is he does not have a testimony of church history. So that's interesting the way it's framed. It's also interesting when they're talking about this forgery, which we understand now was a forgery. It was done by Mark Hoffman whose name Stephen Harper pointedly does not mention, I think. But he certainly wants to grind it into his audience's head and make sure they understand that this was not a real letter by Joseph Smith. He says it over and over. He says it's a purported letter by Joseph Smith. He then says it's not a real letter. He then says it turned out to be a forgery. He then says that Joseph Smith was faked by the forger, or the letter was faked by the forger in the words of Joseph Smith. And then very interestingly, at the end, he talks about his question to his dad, why don't they teach us this at church? So there's so many things that we could go into here. If I'll just make a couple of comments. First off, very clear. He wants the church to understand who are listening to this interview. This was a forgery. This was a fake. As if we are still living in 1985, and as if the church is still denying the fact that Joseph Smith was heavily involved in what we can call, for lack of a better phrase, folk magic of the early 19th century frontier in America, which he was. I mean, the church has finally come out with actual pictures of the seer stone that Joseph Smith used a couple of years ago and admitted and is finally, well, teaching in some places that are hard to access on the official church website, but at least putting it out there in some format that Joseph Smith was not looking at the plates. He actually took a rock and put it in the bottom of a hat and put his face over the hat. And then through a magic, mysterious, miraculous light shining from this rock, Joseph Smith was able to see words, which he then dictated, and his scribe wrote it down. And that's how we got the Book of Mormon we have today. Yeah, as I'm as I'm thinking to along the same lines of what you're saying. First off, 
when you when you start your conversation and the and we're going to find out as we move through this this is the only real example that he's kind of using um when you start off with an example that actually is a forgery you essentially say like any kind of argument against the church is fake it's anti-mormon it's deception it's lies it's it's some type of um something taken out of context it's something that's made up and it really doesn't do justice to the serious issues that plague Mormonism. Uh, it also seems too like Stephen is intentionally not really wanting to go into much detail about treasure digging or like you point out, connect the fact that Joseph was heavily involved in this practice. The reason Mark Hoffman was successful was because he took actual issues in Mormonism and then created tangent documents, fake documents that tied into these issues. So it's one thing to say like, this document came out, it's a forgery. Harper seems to avoid the fact that the document is tied to an actual issue, which is that Joseph was um, deeply involved in treasure digging to the point where rather than the quote that we get from Joseph, where he did it for a short time, made like 14 bucks a month and quickly quit. The reality is for years upon years, he was involved in major, major treasure digs in the Palmyra area and surrounding area. I think Dan Vogel records 17 uh, different treasure digs that the Smiths, uh, Joseph or the Smith family were involved in. So again, when you pretend like it's just this superficial side issue that's a fake, you don't do justice to the reality of just how messy this topic gets once you set Hoffman aside. Absolutely. And even focusing more directly on the issue of this quote-unquote magic wand, as Mr. Harper describes it, we're talking about a divining rod. And we don't even have to go to the, the seer stone Joseph Smith used, so that's part and parcel of this folk magic. We can go to the scriptures that we still have in our Doctrine and Covenants, section 8, the revelation given in April 1829 to Oliver Cowdery about his opportunity to translate the plates. Because what that says, at least in the original version, in the 1833 Book of Commandments, which preceded the Doctrine and Covenants, it actually used the word rod, that Oliver Cowdery has the gift of Aaron, or in other words, the gift of using the rod. And through some method, which I'm not exactly sure I can figure out in my head, Oliver Cowdery's gift was the gift of using the rod, and somehow through using this divining rod, he was going to be able to translate himself, at least a portion of the Book of Mormon. And when you know that it was originally the rod, but that it was later taken out, you can still see vestiges of it in the current Doctrine and Covenants, section 8, uh, such as verses 5 and 6. Oh, remember these words. This is the Lord speaking through Joseph Smith to Oliver Cowdery. Oh, remember these words and keep my commandments. Remember, this is your gift. That's the gift of working with the rod in the 1833 version of the Revelation. Now, this is not all thy gift, for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, it has told you many things. Now, this is the rod. It's told Oliver Cowdery many things. I don't know how, but apparently this is understood and accepted by them. And in fact, and in fact this is ratified by the Lord as being a gift and a legitimate gift for translation. 
He says, therefore, doubt not. This is verse eight. Therefore, doubt not, for it is the gift of God. Don't doubt this, Oliver. It is the gift of God, this gift of Aaron to work with a rod. And you shall hold it in your hands and do marvelous work. So that's where we understand that this gift that he's talking about, the gift of Aaron, is not some spiritual gift out there, which is generally how it's going to be interpreted today in any lesson manuals that we have in the church. But it is something physical that Oliver, excuse me, yes, that Oliver can hold in his hands. It is a rod, which is associated with Aaron from a biblical story about Aaron and the rod that bloomed in order to show that it was his line that had the right to the priesthood in one of the stories in the Old Testament. But that's how it becomes associated with Aaron. So all I'm saying is, you're absolutely right, and I agree with you a million percent, that Stephen Harper is trying to say, oh, this story that Joseph Smith is supposed to have written in a letter to Josiah Stoll about how to work with a magic wand or a rod, that's a forgery. And giving the impression like you say, oh, well, that never happened. It's one incident, it's a forgery, it's a bunch of hooey, so pay no attention to the fact that working with the rod and God ratifying divining rods as legitimate sources of revelation and being legitimate gifts from God is actually contained in our very own scriptures. Yeah, and it certainly paints a strange picture. We, we've, the church has already had a difficult enough time kind of being comfortable with Joseph putting a rock in a hat. Uh, Oliver Cowdery standing over top of the plates, or if the plates aren't in the room, just holding out his stick, which would have been, you know, if it was a hazel stick in a Y-shaped formation, for instance, um, perhaps would have been maybe a couple of feet long. Uh, him standing, holding that thing, trying to translate the Book of Mormon also paints kind of a, I think, a stranger picture than a rock and a hat. Um, uh, and I want to be careful. I, I don't think, I let me phrase it this way. I don't think Stephen is... Um, intentionally trying to deceive the audience that tr Joseph wasn't a treasure digger. What I think Stephen is doing is intentionally withholding from the audience the data which makes this issue he's speaking about troublesome and problematic. What, he's wording this in a way that he is not encouraging anybody to go read about Joseph Smith's treasure digging. He's intentionally leaving out any uh words, concepts, phrases, ideas that would prompt the audience to understand that this issue runs much deeper and, uh, and is withholding that from the audience. Because to then go off and read about Joseph Smith's treasure digging all of a sudden does raise concerns. Um, let's play the, the next clip uh, here of Stephen Harper talking further about uh, this forgery and how his dad helped him resolve it. I was a little concerned, not too concerned. I was worried about a lot of other things. But for a few minutes, at least, I was a little bit disoriented and um, wondered, you know, what, how should I understand this? Uh, this isn't the story I've heard before. And my dad did a great thing. He listened to me. He did not uh, tell me to not think what I was thinking. He didn't tell me to be afraid. He wasn't himself afraid. He said, I don't know. I don't understand that. That's new to me too. Never heard that before. And he didn't pretend to know things he didn't know. That's one of the best things he did for me. And he made me a promise. He said, if you will be patient and keep your faith, 
you'll see that this will all work out. He didn't know how it would, but he believed it would, and of course he was right. Uh, within that year, the man who had forged that letter killed two innocent people and, and then nearly killed himself, and detectives quickly figured out that he was behind the forgeries, and everybody knew in the end that that document wasn't to be believed. All right, so as, as we just got done listening to that clip, RFM, here's two things that come up for me. One is that the advice, I think, from dad is pretty good. I mean, he's saying, to, he's saying about his father, like, my father didn't judge me. He didn't, he didn't come down on my questions. He, he took them seriously. He was willing to let me sit with them. Those are all, I think that's all great advice. The, the trouble is in the background, and I want to note, it is absolutely obvious that um, this... A video is not put together for the person who has serious doubts of the church. This video is put together for members of the church who know somebody who has doubts. And so as Stephen frames this answer, while his dad's giving good advice, the Orthodox member in the back of their head is constantly being reminded that if they just wait, they're going to find out that these issues that are issues aren't really issues at all. They're just fakes. They're just lies. They're just deceptions. They're just tricks. And that the, there is no real issue inside um, church history. The other issue is that if we just wait, if we just have patience, uh, we will figure it out either on the other side, we'll figure it out later, we'll figure out that this was a fake or a fraud. Like the idea is there that if we just put everything on a shelf and there's there the concerns that are out there either aren't real or we can put them off till later. And the reality is that when you dive deep into church history, the problems are so numerous, like the rabbit hole goes forever. And this is hard for an Orthodox member to understand, but what you learn in the three-hour block during church over a 20-year period or a 30-year period literally, literally is not a thousandth of the complexity of church history. And I don't mean like the little mundane stuff, like reading a pioneer journal about how the travels were. I mean the actual issues that affect our truth claims, the actual um, data that imposes that something's contradictory or problematic here, or that the messiness is way more complex than we've allowed the members to understand. What you learn in the three-hour block is not a thousandth, and and that might even be an understatement, not a thousandth of what's out there. Like once you decide like, okay, I want to really know the real narrative and the historical data surrounding all of our truth claims, that rabbit hole literally goes forever. I've been reading church history uh, for 20, let's see here, almost 20 years. Uh, I was 17, uh, 37, actually 22 years. And in my 22 years, I am still every uh, week, two weeks, three weeks, at most a month, I'm learning some new piece of our church history, which is causing concern with how this narrative fits together. I just don't think using a Hoffman example does any justice to this discussion around doubts around church history. No, I agree with you. And it's very simple to say that anything negative about the church is a lie. This is really just falling back into the old playbook about anti-Mormon literature. Don't read anti-Mormon literature because it's filled with lies. 
don't believe anything negative about the church because it's going to turn out to be a lie. Now, Stephen Harper doesn't say that. I know he doesn't believe that because of what he says later, but that is the basic impression. And it's an impression that he obviously meant to give. He couldn't have stressed more that it was a forgery if he had tried. And I know he tried very hard. By the way, I lived through this experience, Bill, back in 1985. I joined in 1978. I was back from my mission. I was in college. I was at a student ward at the University of Texas at Austin, where the university students attended. So these are the college-age kids who are there with me when this bombshell breaks open. This was huge. It was massive. It shook the foundations of the church. And I still remember being in the foyer of this chapel for the student ward, talking to other students. And basically, we're trying to console each other in a spiritual way. I remember specifically talking to another guy named Larry, who was a graduate student in mathematics. So he's a smart enough guy. And we're sitting there trying to make heads or tails out of this. We can't. And we're finally left with the conclusion, well, there is still chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. I remember him saying that specifically to me, well, there's still chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. In other words, even though this has blown everything sky high, this being the Josiah Stoll letter, and the fact that there was all this magic going on at the creation of Mormonism, well, there's still chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. So we can still hang our testimony on that fact, even though everything else just got dynamited by the Josiah Stoll letter. Yeah, and, and you also brought to mind another thing, which is while the Hoffman incident is a forgery, the Hoffman incident also provides a troublesome aspect to Mormon history, which is that LDS leaders at the very top, the, the prophet of the church and his counselors and members of the Quorum of the Twelve are fooled time and time again by these documents to the point where they are taking uh, the funds of the church and purchasing these documents in order to have them with what is perceived by the evidence to be to want to be able to put these aside and kind of store them away so they're not out in the public's eye. The, the idea here that becomes problemsome is that uh, LDS leaders are supposed to have the spirit of discernment. They're supposed to have direct communication with Jesus Christ, and they're to have the gift of the Holy Ghost. And in the midst of that, over months and months and months, maybe even a year or so, um, Mark Hoffman fools LDS leaders into believing anything he tells them in spite of the fact that they are communicating with Jesus, have the spirit of discernment, and have the gift of the Holy Ghost. I th Without... Uh, Stephen Harper addressing that, he makes this issue seem small and minute and periphery, uh, peripheral. And the reality is that this issue is troublesome and problematic uh, to LDS church claims itself. Well, this is the 1980s, which again, I lived through. The whole deal here is that this very letter is the one that was purchased by Gordon B. Hinckley about two years earlier from Mark Hoffman in Gordon Hinckley's office at the church office building. He bought it from him. He took it from him. He hid it up in the church safe or the archives or wherever it is that he hid it. He hid it in a good, solid place so it wouldn't be found. And it remained hidden and undisclosed to the members of the church for about two years. Um, 
for two years until news of its existence was leaked to the press by Mark Hoffman. Mark Hoffman called up the LA Times, I believe it was, and let the LA Times know that the church had a copy of this letter. So the LA Times follows up and immediately the church now has to go into full panic mode about how they're going to release this letter to the press before the press releases the fact that they have it and have had it for a long time without bringing it up to anybody in the church. So this is why it's especially rich that one of the questions that Steve Harper says he asked his dad was, why don't they teach us this at church? Well, the answer to that, my son, is because they're doing everything they can to hide this information from you. And they're not going to let you know about it unless they absolutely have to. This is also during the time when there are Enzyme articles and church talks, but especially Enzyme articles, I remember specifically, that come out and just flat out deny that Joseph Smith was ever involved in any treasure digging activity. This is what's going on in the 1980s, and this is why this was such a huge, huge deal with Mark Hoffman and the letters. And it changed the whole landscape, really, of the church going from denying any of these things to, well, more and more the church having to be a little more open about it, at least stop denying it so publicly. And ironically, this change in the church's stance towards its real history was brought about in large part because of a forgery. Yeah, and to, and to go one uh, step further with what I had said before about the fact that prophet seers and revelators across the board at the top 15 were completely fooled by Mark Hoffman. If you're an Orthodox believer listening to this podcast, I, I want to state so that you can better understand the person across from you who has serious doubts or has drawn uh, unfaithful conclusions about the church and its narrative. What they're seeing, your loved one, what they're seeing is they're weighing in their mind when, how often do prophets, seers, and revelators operate in a way that the evidence points to them being prophets, seers, and revelators, that they seem to see ahead of their time, that they seem to have inspiration or revelation for some upcoming crisis, or the opposite, which is when you think they should have some answer for some problem only to not have it and then to cave to the world changing 40 years after the fact. And your loved one sees like a thousand instances to one of where these men act as just fallible human beings with no connection to the divine rather than prophet seers and revelators who are in direct communication with the savior himself. And so again, it's not about drawing a conclusion of whether it is true or it isn't true. It's a recognition that instances like this Mark Hoffman story where prophet seers and revelators are completely fooled. That kind of situation happens over and over and over again in Mormonism, where an issue arises and the church holds ground, and only when the world seems to have gotten to that point 40 years before does the church seem to begin to shift and change it, uh, its ways to accepting what the world has come to. And for your loved one, when they see that over and over again, it becomes problematic uh, for them. I simply wanted to state that because I, I know there's going to be a few Orthodox believers who are listening. And, and again, I'm not saying that these men are not prophets, seers, and revelators. What I am saying is that when you look at the outward behavior and evidence 
a lot of people struggle to see them actually fulfilling that role. No, I agree with you, Bill. And if you listen closely to the story that Stephen Harper's telling about Mark Hoffman, it's factually correct. But if you listen closely to what he says, that it was about a year later after the church finally, he doesn't say finally, releases this letter, this forgery, this Josiah Stoll letter by Mark Hoffman, that he blows up two people. So this isn't just a matter of the church being embarrassed. This is actually a matter of life and death. In other words, if they had the spirit of discernment, just one of these guys, and said, hey, this is a forgery, they could have exposed Mark Hoffman, and those two people would not have been killed by him. So the second point I wanted to make is that after the explosions, and after Mark Hoffman accidentally, it appears, uh, blew himself partially up, then remember what Steve Harper says. It didn't take long for the police to realize and investigate and find out that Mark Hoffman was a forger and that this letter was a forgery. You see, in the modern LDS church, the 15 top men are not the prophets, seers, and revelators. They're not the ones who know the truth. They're not the ones who can find out the truth. They have delegated that job completely to local law enforcement. Yeah. Exactly. Let's go to uh, let's go to the next bit. But uh, the most important thing about that whole episode for me, that tragic history, is that my father also said, you know, what I know is that the Book of Mormon is true. And then he explained to me his own personal experience with the Holy Ghost, confirming the Book of Mormon to him. So he he rested on the bedrock of his faith in the Book of Mormon. And everything else, he tested against that. And if he didn't understand it or didn't know the answers, he waited patiently for more light uh, because he had faith in what he already knew. And ever since then, I have put my faith in that faith. It would be several years after that before I gained my own testimony of the Book of Mormon. But I believed in what he believed. And I especially believed in his promise that if I would be patient and keep looking for answers, I would see that it would all make sense at some point. So um, I'm sitting here chuckling because uh, to me this is hilarious in in that uh, when Stephen Harper ends, he says, look, I just knew that if I just hang on, I I learned a long time ago, if I just hang on, this will all make sense. And I'm, I'm, I think it's funny because that's not what his answer was. His answer from his dad was, okay, there's problems, things don't add up, but I have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, so I'm just not going to worry about it. And that's a very different solution than saying the solution's going to come into the picture. Now, again, we've talked about the Hoffman example. Um, setting that aside, the reality is Stephen Harper right this moment is conscious of the fact that there are a thousand contradictions and problematic issues within church history pointing back at the truth claims of Mormonism being problematic. And he pretends like, if I just have patience, I get solutions to all these. And the reality is, no. If we were to sit with Stephen Harper and go over every one of these issues that he knows, he knows these intimately, he would acknowledge that that some of these answers from the church are uh, less reasonable than the critical answer. 
and that this stuff doesn't quite fit together that great and that he still has questions, which he'll acknowledge here in a little bit, that he still has questions uh, about the church. And it's not a matter of just having one or two questions. It's a matter of having a thousand questions and more than that. It's not a question like, oh, there's evidence on both sides, and maybe the critic has a point, but also this faithful answer is also reasonable. It's the reality that on these issues, the reason people are having severe doubts and drawing unfaithful conclusions is because they feel the data is overwhelmingly on the side of the critical side of the argument. And so uh, I, I think he's playing a trick here. Where on one hand, he, he knows he has to acknowledge that he has questions and he's putting them on a shelf, which he'll do throughout the rest of this interview. On the other hand, he also wants to make it sound like there really aren't any serious issues. And if you're just patient, you'll get answers to the couple of legitimate questions you've got. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing. And we don't actually have to be reading his mind in order to understand that you and I both know the issues. We are amateur Historians. And by amateur, I don't mean that our efforts are amateurish. I just mean we're not getting paid for it. Stephen Harper, on the other hand, is a professional historian. We know what the issues are. You know what the issues are. I know what the issues are. Stephen Harper knows what the issues are. And he is very, very obviously not going to talk about what any of the issues are in this interview. That seems to be something that's very clear to me. He is not actually going to deal with any of the issues. He's going to talk around them. He's going to circumlocute. And he's going to do this this uh, two-face kind of act. Two-face sounds very derogatory. But uh, what I mean is that he's going to say, on the one hand, all these questions have answers. Uh, I haven't found them yet. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever find them in this life. But... Don't let it bother you because ultimately there are answers. And if you study hard enough like me and are able to do this full time and have access to the original documents, and if you do all that and still remain, retain faith in the Book of Mormon, then you'll find the answers too. So really, this is the fundamental message in this interview as I take it away, which is the way to answer church history questions is to hang around and just wait long enough. And if you wait long enough, eventually you will find them. So really, it's a faith-based answer. It's based on the idea that ultimately you will get the answers to your questions, even though at the same time he's saying, and this is the other face, right? Even though at the same time he's saying, I've got many, many questions about church history. Several of them I found answers to that satisfy me. Several of them I have not. So he's actually saying he's got a ton of questions about church history he does not have answers to. And by the way, when he says answers in the context of what he's talking about, he doesn't mean answers about who did what, when, to who. What he means is answers to these issues that are based in church history that end up having a negative impact on the faithful dominant narrative of the LDS church. That's what he means. Yeah, and to take it a step further, as you point out, he's, on some level, he's kind of caught in a lie here. And I don't know that he knowingly does it, but I think if you were to sit down, he would acknowledge like he's trying to 
couch all of this in the most faithful language possible. But he says on one hand, and again, you'll hear this throughout the interview. On one hand, he's a professional church historian who has unanswered questions. On the other hand, he promises you as a non-professional historian that you'll find answers to your questions. And that's a contradiction. So if Stephen Harper, as a professional historian, can't get answers to his questions, other than to say he had a spiritual experience about the Book of Mormon, uh, it's not fair to then promise the lay member that if they keep reading and studying and thinking about this thing, they'll get the answers to these questions. That to me feels like a contradiction. And, and I don't, again, I don't think he's intentionally lying, but I think on some level, he's certainly being dishonest with himself as he answers the question. Yes. What I think we're seeing here is where he slips from being a historian into being a theologian. Or an apologist. Or an apologist. Uh, and the other thing I want to note too, for the person in the church who, again, has doubts or has made unfaithful conclusions, we, we recognize in their paradigm versus the faithful member, the faithful member argument back is always, but I have a testimony. I've prayed about the Book of Mormon. I know the Book of Mormon's true. And Stephen Harper points to his father's testimony as being his foundation until he gets a testimony of the Book of Mormon himself. Um, we did a podcast a while back on Mormon Discussion where we talked about wood tools and steel tools. Steel tools are tools that allow you to decide the truth of an issue, to make up your mind on an issue um, in a way that would work both in the true and living church as well as in a church that is not true and maybe is deeply unhealthy and untrue. So for instance, if someone's in uh, the Jehovah Witness faith or in Scientology, the, the tools we give them to figure out that they're in a church that's not true, if those tools actually work, those are called steel tools. If the tool only encourages somebody to stay and to hang on and to wait for further answers, that's a wood tool. Now, I'm not discrediting whether that advice is good or not, only that it doesn't help us decide the truthfulness of a fact or a message. When Stephen Harper talks about his dad's testimony or his own, the reality is that people in every religion have spiritual experiences that are framed within that religion, meaning that Catholics have Catholic experiences. Catholics see the face of Mother Mary on the side of a barn. They see uh, statues of Mary cry. Um, Catholics have Catholic experiences. Methodists have Methodist experiences. Uh, people of Islam have Islamic experiences. Jews have Jewish experiences. When you say like, look, there's problems out there. The evidence is on the critic's side. Uh, we don't have good answers. Put it on a shelf, but I know the Book of Mormon is true. Whether the Book of Mormon is true or not, the reality is that, that a Mormon's experience about the Book of Mormon is no different than the religious experience of someone else in another faith. Hence, unless you can find a way to say like their experience is, is uh, not legitimate and my experience is valid, then you have to recognize that having a testimony of the Book of Mormon, while uh, may be true, 
is not the end all be all of just as a trump card to say like my religion is the right religion. Um, it, the, the other thing that needs to be added into this is that if we were to sit down with Stephen Harper's dad, who I'm assuming maybe has passed away by now, but if we sat down with Stephen Harper's father and said, in that moment of the Mark Hoffman issue where you bore your testimony of the Book of Mormon to your son, tell me what that testimony was. And whatever Stephen Harper's dad would have framed that testimony of he knew I can guarantee you that if we fast forward to today and look at things like Richard Bushman acknowledging just how much 19th century material is in the Book of Mormon and just how difficult it is to make all of the Book of Mormon as a literal, uh, factual, historical account of ancient Nephites and Lamanites, there are, there's so much difficulty there that even our own scholars acknowledge that on some level there is a significant mix of Joseph Smith's culture uh, and his own information, knowledge, and context in the Book of Mormon, that Stephen Harper's father's testimony of all the things he knew to be true, even that would be different today if he understood the data. Yes, and one of the things here that begins to come out, and it'll come out more in this interview, is that the reason this is so difficult to understand, this interview, which is being given the title, How to Answer Questions About Church History, when really it doesn't deal with how to answer questions about church history, is because the fundamental answer he's giving is, just wait. Just wait. Continue to study. But the question that that begs is, where are you supposed to wait? Well, the answer is, you're supposed to wait in the pews of the LDS Church. That's what the fundamental answer is here. The question is how to deal with questions about church history, and the answer that's being given is stay in the church. Well, if you say it that obviously, it's a non sequitur. How does that, how does staying in the church address the question of how do I answer questions about church history? Well, it doesn't. But I think that's the fundamental disconnect that goes on between the title of this interview and what's actually being talked about. Yeah. And if you recognize that just wait works within Scientology, just wait works within the Jehovah Witness faith, just wait works within any religion. Um, and also recognize that here's Stephen Harper, a professional church historian. And by saying just wait, what he's also saying is I don't have any answers. He is. And he will actually become astonishingly Frank, much franker than I ever would have expected him to be later on in the interview in that regard. Great. Let's go to the next clip. And I've had many, many church history questions since then. And for several of them, I have looked and looked and found that there are good answers, and I now know the answers. And for several others, I am still looking. Mm. But I know that if you keep looking patiently and have faith that someday you see that it all works out. I know that from that breakfast experience. So, so RFM, uh, your thoughts there, it seems like more just wait. Oh yeah, there's where you see quite dramatically the shift between historian and theologian, or as you put it, um, apologist. He says, historically speaking, these are the facts. I've had many, many questions about church history Several, which by the way, technically means two or three. I, I don't know if he's using it in the technical sense. Sometimes people think several means more than two or three. But several, 
I've looked at, and not just looked at, I've looked and looked for information. So he's done extensive laborious research on several of these questions, and he has found good answers. Now, God forbid he should share even one of those with us to help us understand what the heck he's talking about or to help our faith in some kind of realistic way and share with us his good answer for one challenging church history question. And then he says for several others, he's which still- is how many, which, which is how many? <laughs> Apparently it's the rest, actually. Right. Yeah, I think it's a couple thousand. <laughs> because otherwise, uh, the many, many questions becomes around six. So really several he's looked at his good answers. For the rest, he does not have good answers, but he's still looking. He's still looking. Now, that is factual. That is true in the sense of that's the actual state of things. And now he shifts into being a theologian. In other words, he goes from answering the question as a historian to answering the question as a believer. And what he now says is, but if you keep looking, you will find answers. And in the end, you will see that it all works out. Well, apparently he has greater faith for us finding the answers than he has for himself finding the (laughs) answers. And I think that's really nice of him because, you know, I'm kind of flattered by that. But I think the reality is, is that's where he does the shift, right? And it's very dramatic. The, the demarcation lines are clear. He's going to say, this is my experience as a historian, but dang it, my dad told me back when I was like, you know, 14, that you hang in there, you stick with the Book of Mormon, regardless of what the questions are, regardless of whether they're answered, regardless of the impact that those questions that are unanswered may have on the actual historicity of the Book of Mormon, Regardless of all that, you just keep believing the Book of Mormon is true. And now the faith claim, eventually, you will see that it all works out. In spite of the fact that for me, the professional historian who has access to almost all of the church documents, with the exception of the ones that the church keeps locked up in the First Presidency vault, uh, I, I, as a professional historian, speaking of Stephen Harper, I don't have answers to all my questions, but you, as a lay member with as with not as much access, you're going to get the answers. Yeah. And I think basically he's just mouthing platitudes at this point. If you try and make real sense out of it, what he's really saying is, Hey, this is going to happen like in the next life when, you know, we all get resurrected and the planet becomes a Urim and Thummim and we can look down into it and get answers to all our questions and all that kind of stuff. Either that, or he's just saying, or maybe, you know, enough time will go by. You'll forget about the question in the first place. Does it seem strange they the church takes the time to create a good quality video with Stephen Harper from the church history department and all Stephen Harper is on to say is just wait. Well, absolutely it is. It's like you know, they got a committee, right? And they say, "Hey, we got a great idea. We got a great idea." People are leaving because of questions about church history. Well, this committee has no clue about what the questions about church history are. They just know people are leaving. (laughs) So, hey, let's get a guy from the church history department. He's a nice guy. He looks pretty good. We'll put him in an off-white shirt, not white. And without a tie, he'll still have a little blazer on, so he'll look professional. We'll have him go out there. We'll have him say how it is that he deals with questions about church history. And then it's like nobody pays attention to it after that. Right. It's like it goes on, and he says very damning statements later on, and we'll just publish it. I don't know where the review committee is, but I think the problem is is that the church historians are the ones who are in the church history department, or they're people like you, and they're like me, and there's nobody over it supervising it who can have any kind of meaningful input 
in how it should be presented or maybe this should be edited or this should be changed. It just goes out in a big pile of bleh. Yeah, and it just seems that if you're going to have Stephen Harper on as a church historian, that's the expertise he adds to this video, then then he should be able to shed light on issues that nobody is qualified to do but a professional church historian inside the church historian's office and yet he doesn't have anything other than I could, other than he tells you the same thing that Elder Quentin Cook or Elder Ballard tells you which is just wait. Oh yeah, and he's going to quote from President Iring here shortly. <laughs> so let's go to the next clip. You're having too much fun. And so let's fast forward to you at BYU and um, starting on this journey into church history and studying it. And do you think that you did go into it because you had questions? Was that part of it? I do believe that I study history to learn who I am. Uh, I study American history and Mormon history. And I'm pretty sure that the reason for that is I'm on a quest to figure out where I came from in a historical sense and what makes me who I am and, and so forth. And so you have a unique opportunity that a lot of us don't to really dig into original transcripts and, and things like that. As you have done that, have you found it leads to more questions? Does it make your faith shaky? Does it strengthen that faith? How has that affected your testimony? This is a great question. Um, one great scholar whom I admire once put it this way. He said, I don't have a testimony of church history. It would take a long time to explain what he meant by that. But let me tell you how I gained a testimony of the Book of Mormon and get back to your question in a sort of backwards way. Okay. Uh, I was called to serve a mission and thought I'd better read the Book of Mormon through for myself. We'd read it as a family several times. I'd slept through part of that. Not, in other words, really engaged for myself. But I realized I need to know, and so I read it uh, seriously for myself with real intent, faith in Christ, a sincere heart. And you know that at the end of the book it says, if you have those things, and if you ask, then you can know the truth by the power of the Holy Ghost. So I said a simple prayer, and in answer to that prayer, I received a wonderful feeling, um, and along with it a sense words, not audible words, but words in my head that, were, that came from outside of me, came from God, and the words were, you already know it's true. And I felt at the same time that I didn't want to fight against those words or reject those words. I did know. I knew it with a certainty, and I'm grateful for that. Now, that's one of really very few things that I know about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I know a lot of facts, but um, I'm not one who knows everything about everything about the church. I have way more questions than I have answers. Lots of things that I would like to know Lots of things I don't understand very well and have studied extensively. And so I find that um, as you study the original records, it's like the, 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 you know, the periphery or the perimeter, the border of the circle. If you live in the middle of a circle and you, you reach out, the more you reach out, the further the circle goes. Not a very good analogy, but the idea is 
the more you know about church history, the more you realize there is to know, and the more you realize that you don't know. So I have lots of questions. Those questions don't change the nature of my faith. My faith, I have faith precisely because of the great amount that I don't know and the little amount that I do know. So I put my faith in what I know, and I exercise the kind of faith my father told me would be rewarded. <laughs> it's all yours, uh, <laughs> This is going to be bad. You're going to be laughing. I'm going to be laughing. Then we won't be able to say anything. Oh, my God. There's gosh. so much he says well, here. Go ahead. Unpack it for us. <laughs> Okay, really quick. I'll try and be really quick here. Okay, the interviewer asked him a pretty simple question, and she thinks she knows what the answer is going to be. You know why? Because she doesn't know she crap doesn't, about All she knows history. is correlated Mormonism. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so this guy's learning about correlated Mormonism, and he's learning it really good, and he knows it better than the rest of us. So, of course, uh, did, you, did you study church history at BYU because you had questions? And he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say, yeah, I did because I had questions. No, he changes it. Now, he changes it into something which I really doubt is the real reason he began studying history. Maybe it's the result of his history. I don't know. But his answer is that he studies church history to learn who I am. Well, I think there's a lot of people out there who haven't studied church history who probably have a good idea of who they are. So I don't know what he means, but to learn who I am and where I came from. So he studies church history, studies American history, so he can learn who he is, where he came from, and what makes me who I am. So that's his answer to why he studies church history. It certainly isn't to answer his questions. We know that by now, because the study of church history has not answered his questions. Rather, it has proliferated his questions. He gives the example about a circle, and as a circle grows bigger and bigger, the circumference of the circle expands. So what he's trying to say is what's inside the circle is what he knows. And as he grows to learn more than what he doesn't know, represented by the uh, periphery of the circle, is expands. Well, that's, you know, just a, a restatement of the famous expression, the more I learn, the less I know. But it's also his way of saying that not only the bigger the circle gets, the more I don't know, it's the more I dig, the deeper the rabbit hole goes. Yeah. So He's also asked in the beginning, does your study of church history create more questions or more answers? And he doesn't answer that question directly. He goes into this analogy, which you, you talked about just now. But he does not want to answer that question. But he also reveals himself further along. So the idea is, does the study of church history provide more questions about the church or does it give you more answers? And this, like you say, she's fully expecting him to go like, no, the more I study, the more it builds faith, the more resolutions I get to some of these questions I have, that's not his answer. What his answer is, is the idea that, um, first off, I don't have a testimony of church history, which is an acknowledgement that church history is not faith promoting to the degree that this lady expected him to answer back. He's acknowledging like, no, if, if my testimony was based on church history, then we'd have a problem here. But he says, my testimony is not based on church history. So he sets church history aside. As a church historian, the truthfulness of the church has nothing to do with church history. So you recognize immediately that he doesn't care where the data points go. He doesn't care where the facts take him. Now, again, he's a historian, professional, 
uh, works for the church and is paid to do it. He does not care where the facts take him. He doesn't care where the data goes. His testimony is not based on church history. Then he also reveals himself. Now, remember earlier he said, you know, I've got a couple of things. I got several things or a few things that I've got uh, questions on that have gotten answers. And I've got other, a few other things that I still have questions on. He finally shows his true colors when he says, I've got some answers, but I have a whole lot more questions than I do answers. And again, he's already promised you that you'll get the answers. And he now acknowledges that the majority of his understanding of Mormonism and its history is way more questions than answers. And and then he ends by saying, like, the further he studies church history, as you point out, the circle gets bigger. On the periphery is more issues that don't have answers. This guy's complete um, framework for being on this video falls apart in this very quote. I said, yeah, it totally goes away with this quote because what he's saying is you'll have all, you may have all these questions about church history, but you keep studying long enough and you'll get your answers. What he has now done is said, it doesn't make any difference how long you study because the more you study, the more questions you're going to have. There is no end to this rabbit hole. You are always going to have more questions. So here, as you say, he has contradicted his entire framework for what he said before by revealing that he's got way, way more questions than he has answers because the more he studies, the more questions he has. I do have to go back to his statement. I don't have a testimony of church history because that is a quote from Davis Bitton, B-I-T-T-O-N, a famous church historian, which he gave in 2004 as part of an essay and presentation at the fair conference by fair i mean what is now fair mormon conference and he put this out there you know i have no gripes against davis bitten i have no gripes against steve harper all i want to say is that this is a bumper sticker slogan that church historians use now that davis bitten created it in order to dodge the issue it is not a true statement all it is is a dodge and what they're saying is I don't have a testimony of church history. Okay, let's break it down. What does a testimony mean? A testimony means a witness by the Holy Ghost that something is true. That's how we use it in Mormonism, right, Bill? Yeah. So I don't have a witness from the Holy Ghost that church history is true. Well, what is church history? The problem is, is that with our church, the truth claims of our church are inextricably bound up in church history in what are claimed to be historical events where God and the supernatural break into this world and become part of the history of this church. And there's a lot of church history out there, but I will propose to you, Bill, that there are three historical events that form the basis of the truth claims of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they are, number one, the first vision. They are, number two, the appearance of Moroni to Joseph Smith, to give to him or show him the spot where the gold plates are buried and the process of translating those gold plates and their production as the Book of Mormon. And the third historical event is the appearance of angelic messengers, John the Baptist and then Peter, James, and John to confer upon Joseph Smith and through him, every other priesthood holder today, the priesthood of God. Those are the three historical events upon which the church is based. You and I both know that there are serious, serious issues with all three of those historical claims when you actually get down and start looking at the documentation, which you have done, which I have done, and which Stephen Harper has done. But now what he's trying to say is, hey, 
I don't have a witness from the Holy Ghost that any of those three historical events are true, but I don't need to have that. I'm still going to be a faithful, believing Mormon. Okay, how does that work out? That's what they never quite get into. How can you reject or say you don't have a witness of the foundational events of Mormonism and yet say, oh, but the Book of Mormon is true? It is obvious to me that Stephen Harper is using the expression, the Book of Mormon is true, in a very, very different way than your normal member on the street would be using that same expression, or your normal member in fast and testimony meeting would be using that expression. Yeah, good point. Um, a Mormon testimony is deeply hinged on testifying that historical events happened the way that the Mormonism tells the narrative in the correlated uh uh, story. So the story that Mormonism tells of itself in the three-hour block and its manuals, that our entire truthfulness hinges on a handful of historical events and a thousand more historical events behind it supporting those uh, handful. And what Stephen Harper is saying is that none of those data points matter. I don't have a testimony of that. Uh, I, I know that Joseph Smith had a first vision. I don't care what day it was on. I don't care if he saw two beings. I don't care the reasons he had for going in the grove. And I don't care if all of it contradicts itself. Um, so yes, exactly. The other issue too is that when we say as a, as a believer, as a faithful member, when we say, look, there's questions. There's just questions everywhere. People have doubts. That's because there's questions. The reality is we're not granting any space for the person who has made an unfaithful conclusion. Here's what I mean. Uh, it's one thing on one hand to say there's people who have questions and that makes you feel comfortable because there's questions and there's answers and sooner or later they'll find them. The reality is that I think a large majority of people who dive down the rabbit hole, as we've said it, uh, who dive into the data end up not having questions because if you make space for the critical conclusion, if you make space for the critical argument, the critical explanation, on many of these, if you're willing to accept the mountain of evidence on one side versus the, the small amount of evidence on the other, it becomes no longer a question or a doubt. It becomes an unfaithful conclusion. And so for Stephen Harper to say like, look, I've got questions, he, he recognized, I'm telling you, if we could sit down with this guy, he would recognize that the question goes away if we side with the critic. Like the critic has an explanation. The critic has a reasonable explanation. The critic often has the most reasonable explanation, but because we simply cannot accept the critical explanation, we are left still with a question. Yes. And can I... Uh, give an example of what I was talking about before to try and make it a little bit more clear about this. I don't have a testimony of church history. Um, let's just take it to Christianity generally, okay? Because Mormons, like other Christians, believe that Jesus Christ, Son of God, he dies, he's resurrected on the third day. Through that resurrection experience, somehow immortality, forgiveness of sins is transmitted to other human beings who do A, B, or C, depending upon what church you belong to, okay? But let's say we run into a Christian who self-identifies as a Christian, but when you ask him about the resurrection of Jesus, which is the hinging focal point of all Christianity, when you ask him about the resurrection of Jesus, he says, no, I don't really believe that that happened. 
And you say, what? He says, well, I don't really have, I don't have a testimony of church history. Of course, a resurrection would be a historical event. You understand. So when he says that, this hypothetical Christian, we immediately know what kind of a Christian he is, right? We know that he's not a person who really believes in the miraculous aspects claimed by Christianity, but he is a person who believes that Jesus probably really existed, that he taught some good things, some good principles, that he lived a good life, and that his teachings are, at least in some part, worth learning and following, and his example is one worth emulating. Okay, so that's what a Christian is who doesn't have a testimony of church history. So now hopefully that example will will make it clear what is pretty clear to me that when Steve Harper says, I don't have a testimony of church history, he's the exact same kind of person. He has studied the documents to the point where he understands that the miraculous claims of Mormonism related to its history are probably not true. They really didn't happen. There was nothing miraculous about it. They can be explained in other ways that are more logical. And he recognizes all that as a church historian. Nevertheless, he believes that there are things in Mormonism, in Joseph Smith's teachings, in the scriptures that he produced, that are worth learning, that are worth following, that are worth patterning his life after. So in that way, he can completely divorce the history from the quote-unquote truth claims of the church. And when I say the truth claims, this is where he says, I know the Book of Mormon is true. This is how he's redefining truth. He's doing basically what Richard Bushman did probably, which is Richard Bushman tries to define the church not in terms of its truth, but in terms of its goodness, that there is good that results from following the teachings of the church. And this is what I think Stephen Harper's doing, and I think it's going to become apparent when he starts uh, likening the church and its miraculous truth claims to Santa Claus later on in the interview. Yeah, and, and my his his idea that, as you point out, my testimony is based on the goodness of the church. Well, when you base your testimony on that, surely you're going to feel good about it. Um, he also, when he says, essentially, to himself, as well as to the listeners, is that a testimony should be based on your feelings that historical events happened, even if the historical data imposes that those historical events didn't happen. That to me seems um, insane and that nobody outside of the religious paradigm would ever make space to buy it that way. Like if the data imposes that an event didn't happen the way that one claims it did, it would be insane to still say, like, I'm going to believe it anyway because I feel good about it. What I hear him saying is slicing the truth a little bit finer than that. I don't hear him saying, uh, I have a wonderful feeling about church history or aspects of church history. He reserves that language exclusively for the Book of Mormon. And he says, I had a wonderful feeling about the Book of Mormon when I read through it the first time, when I'm finally either on my mission or called on my mission. And if I could just take a second here to point out the rather obvious fact to me, because I've heard this over and over and over in the church by now, people who don't have a testimony, they have not had a spiritual experience, and they keep trying and trying and trying to get the spiritual witness of the Book of Mormon, and they never get it. And so ultimately what they decide is, 
oh, I don't need a spiritual experience. I've known it was true all along. And that is exactly what I hear Stephen Harper describing. I had a wonderful feeling, whatever that is, but I understood that I've known it's true all along. And over and over, he keeps basing his testimony on his father's testimony and following the principle about eventually everything will work out with these questions about church history. And it seems to all stem back to his father. So it does seem that he is, even at this late date, relying on his father's words and his father's instructions. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but at some point, you've got to put away childish things and become a historian. Yeah, and, and I would want to note one last thing, which is that Hindus have um, positive feelings and I think spiritual testimony of the Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata. Gesundheit. Uh, people of Islam. Because, <laughs> okay. <laughs> people of Islam. I got um, I, Okay. <laughs> people of Islam have a, a spiritual connection to the Quran. Uh, what, no matter what religion it is, if there is a sacred text in that religion, the adherence to that religion have a spiritual testimony of that sacred text. That spiritual testimony does not make that book true. It may make it spiritually beneficial. It may make it um, helpful to one's life. It may contain truth that inspires one to be better. It doesn't make it a historical fact. Uh, I simply want to note that. Let's, uh, let's jump to the next clip. So let's talk about that because um, you're blessed that you have that uh, sure knowledge. A lot of people today, I think, you know, we have this immediacy with the world where we can find answers to questions. They may or may not be true <laughs> very quickly. And we can go down rabbit holes of things that aren't true very quickly. So I have seen this lately that people find things that just shake them. Certainly. And, and especially with, I think, as you said, more and more information is coming out about church history and about stances the church may have taken in the past or people in the church. So how can we maybe kind of try to get to where you are without going through the archives? What's <laughs> <laughs> um, a good place to start if, if we, we read something and Boy. it shakes us a little bit? RFM, she's making the point here that in normal life, everywhere else except for this particular religion that we're in, because you can do it with Catholicism and uh, Scientology, you can do it with Jehovah's Witnesses, even Mormonism would claim like, hey, your churches aren't true, and on some level that's that's demonstrable. Um, but here with Mormonism, she's saying like Mormonism is an anomaly. Everywhere else in our life, we can go to the internet, we can do a search and we can discover that Mormonism um, cannot be resolved that way. That Mormonism, the truth of Mormonism, the truthfulness of the church cannot be decided through a Google search in spite of the fact that she acknowledges that that is the way that all of us are finding truth in every other aspect of our life. And I simply want to say, for if you allow yourself to not take the faithful position for a second, if you allow yourself to be on the critical side and say, like, I really want to know if the church is true and I'm not going to base, I'm not going to dismiss the data because of a spiritual feeling, but I'm going to actually look at the data and I'm going to weigh it. I'm going to make, the, so I'm going to stop there and say, I'm going to make the argument as Bill Real that you can go on the internet, you can pull up the CES letter, the Mormon primer, letter to my wife. 
you can pull up those documents and in about an hour, you can read through all the data that imposes that Mormonism is not what it claimed to be. And a majority of people who dive down that data in the end decide that that's the case, that Mormonism is not what it claims to be. And so I don't think it's fair to say like, look, we're just not going to pay attention to the data. I don't have a testimony of church history. Set that stuff off to the side. I've prayed about it. I've got a feeling and that's what I'm going to go on. And I'm going to wait until some future date that Stephen Harper promises me that I'll get answers in spite of the fact that he doesn't have any answers and he's got more questions, way more questions according to him than he has answers. Good points. I also note that she seems to not be able to resist uh, when talking about doing a Google search. By the way, once again, revealing in the questions the, the reason that they're having this interview in the first place. I always like these little places where the questions reveal the purpose behind it. It's because of the power of Google. And there are so many members of the church, mostly younger members, who are doing Google searches and finding stuff they shouldn't find because it shakes them. And she has to throw in the fact that they may or may not be true, the things that you find on Google about the church. Well, sure, that's true, but she's throwing it in there to try and give the idea, well, the stuff that is true, uh, well, that's good stuff about the church. That stuff that isn't true, that's probably mostly bad stuff about the church. Like it might be a forgery or something about a, a magic wand and Joseph Smith being involved in it. But I also notice that what this interviewer keeps doing to Stephen Harper, I mean, Stephen Harper is a member of the church historian's office. He knows stuff and he comes on there. His body language, his facial language is, I know a whole ton of stuff that I am never going to share with you on this episode. I'm never going to talk about the real church issues that I have questions about. This is supposed to be faith promoting. And so I'm not going to do that on this podcast. But she says at the beginning of this quote that you just played, she says, you know, not everyone has been blessed like you to have a sure knowledge, Stephen. And I'm just thinking, what is Steve thinking in his head? He says, look, all I said was I had a feeling. I didn't say I have a sure knowledge of anything. What are you doing? But she always wants to keep trying to bootstrap him up higher and higher because it's important for her to do that because he's a church historian. He knows all the bad stuff, even though he won't talk about it. So now his wonderful feeling about the Book of Mormon when he read it that, oh, I always knew it was true. This now becomes for her a sure knowledge. As you point out, she talks about this issue as if the, the the problems really aren't true, that we'll have to downplay that the truth of the church or the data can tell us anything about the truthfulness of the church. That's just not life. Like here we are in 2018 and our our young people are going off to college. They're, they're being taught to be critical thinkers. They're being taught to get information, to get information on both sides, uh, to weigh the, the arguments. And the reality is the church does not fare well when we dive into the data. And this is evidenced here by the fact that Stephen Harper, the church historian, the reason he's on the episode is he's the expert on church history. He can tell us things about church history that nobody else can tell us. And he's choosing to tell us nothing about church history. He's choosing to say like, look, I don't really want to talk about it. I don't want to go there. When I go there, I got more questions and answers and I just don't base my testimony on this stuff. And I've got more questions and answers. It, it just seems such an odd uh, such an odd thing to be happening in this video. And I don't think the average watcher of this video is even picking up on this, that 
here's an expert on church history who doesn't want to talk about church history. And as you point out, she keeps wanting to make his testimony seem certain and his body language and his words keep indicating that he's really uncomfortable acting as if church history resolves his concerns. Right. And never forget, (laughs) never forget that the same interviewer started out her introduction was saying that Stephen Harper has found that his study of church history has been in the words of Lord Acton an illumination of his soul. Well, we're about halfway through this interview and you can see what an illumination to his soul Stephen Harper is actually claiming his study of church history is. I know we're coming to the end here of part what will be part one uh, of this uh, podcast, Bill, but I think it's interesting the question that she leaves Steve Harper with at the end of this part. Of course, it continues on in the interview, in the actual interview, but she says, what's a good place to start if we read something and it shakes us. So here's the layperson asking the church historian, if we read something that shakes us about church history, where is a good place to start to get an answer to that? Now, if I'm the church historian, and I'm not, but I can imagine a church historian giving the answer, well, if you read something that shakes you, then odds are it has been addressed in one of the church essays in the gospel topics section, three clicks deep on the church website. I'll write you out a map so you can find it, X marks the spot so you can get to those essays. He never says that, which I think is revealing. In fact, I don't think he ever actually answers the question. This is another one of the many questions asked by the interviewer that Stephen Harper, in his good judgment as a historian and knowing what he knows, decides and it's probably safest not to actually answer this question, and we'll take it in, a, in another direction. Yeah, let's finish with his answer here, uh, part one, and uh, and hopefully the listeners will then get to part two and, and kind of finish that up and see all of these other angles to what he's talking about. Um, as you point out, if I'm asked this question, somebody's found something that's shaken them, what should they do? Uh, if, if I'm a church historian, and I truly believe that most of the concerns are forgeries and lies and deceptiveness. I'm going to challenge people to go back to the sources. I'm going to challenge, as you say, to go read the gospel topic essays. Uh, I'm going to point people to like, hey, if you read something on the surface and it bothered you, like dig deeper. Uh, But let's see what Stephen Harper's suggestion is. So here we go. Roll the tape. This is a fantastic question. And um, I appreciate the struggle that many people have. I think of myself in that struggle uh, myself. I think a difference for me with the many people I talk to or hear about who are really, really troubled is that I had my formative experience early at age 14. And uh, all of us at some point or other get knocked back on our heels a little bit. Disoriented is the word I used. And we we wonder if what we thought we knew is what we know. John Widso, who went on to become an apostle, had his at Harvard as a graduate student. He talks about it in his autobiography, uh, studying with world-renowned professors, all of whom, except one, challenged his faith in pretty direct ways. And he had uh, an experience where he really wrestled to know if the restored gospel was true and through a lot of seeking, hard work, intellectual work, as well as spiritual work, which is the gospel recipe, he came to 
know for himself, to have faith in, in, in the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. <laughs> uh, so he's asked, he's a historian. He's an expert because he's a historian. He's being asked by a lady who's looking to him for his, his historian expertise. It says, look, some people find some information and right away they, they have some severe issues with doubt. Um, he acknowledges immediately. He goes, I feel the same way. I've got the same experience. So he's acknowledging that rather than church history being an illumination to his soul, that he too is struggling with doubts over church history. Now he chooses to side with faith because he had a good feeling um, when he was a, a youngster and his dad had a testimony. And this other really smart guy, uh, John Widstow, who was a scientist, he got a, a spiritual feeling and, uh, and ignore the fact that I'm Stephen Harper and I get paid by the church and I'll lose my job if I say anything otherwise. And ignore the fact that John Widstow is paid by the church and he'll get fired uh, or released from his calling if, if he acknowledges otherwise. So on some level, like he, he's saying there aren't answers. Um, he doesn't want you to chase down the sources. He doesn't want you to read the gospel topic essays. He doesn't want you to even dig further into the problem. He wants you to set the problem aside. He wants you to read the Book of Mormon. He wants you to pray about it. And if you feel good about that, then all the problems should be set aside and not worried about. Um, you'll find answers, even though he hasn't. And if you just wait to the other side, God will resolve all this anyway. Uh, so just wait. Yeah, this is why I say that uh, even from the look on his face, not to mention his words, that he is saying under the uh, in the subtext, what he's saying is, I know a whole load about this church, but I'm never going to share it with you. So your question is a very reasonable one. Jeez, that's a great question. Dang it. You know, if I, if you read something about the church and it shakes you, uh, where should we go? What's a good place to start? Well, it's an excellent question, of course, but he's not going to answer it. Instead, he's going to say, wow, yeah, people really do get troubled about church history. Man, I know lots of people who get troubled about church history. And, thank and, goodness, and I myself, I myself am troubled by church history. Yes, and thank goodness my first experience was with a forgery because the guy blew himself up uh, you know, a, a year later and the police figured out it was actually a forgery. So that's a nice, easy, cut and dried example, which he knows is not representative of the real issues in church history. But thank goodness I had that experience myself. And by the way, you know, I'm a smart guy. I know a lot about church history. Even if I'm not going to talk about it, you can take my word for it that I know a lot about church history because I am <clears throat> in the church historian's office. So I'm still in the church and, you know, hey, wait, there's this other guy. Yeah, he's an apostle. And he had issues with the church. He got challenged all the time, but dang it, he stayed in the church. So really all he's saying here is, I'm not going to answer your question about where a good place to start is if you read something about church history that shakes you. Instead, just look at me. I'm still in the church. I still go. I still pay my tithing. And look at Widso. Look at the apostle who also had questions, and he stayed in the church, and he continued to pay tithing. Well, that's not really a good place to start. All that is is an argument from authority. It's saying, look, there's smart people over here who continue to stay in the church. Therefore, there's almost a uh, patting on the head going on. Though I don't think he really intends it. He doesn't strike me as that condescending, but it could be taken as a patting on the head to a little child saying, don't you worry about your issues with the church because people who know a lot more about those issues than you do, they still believe. If we allow ourselves to read between the lines, Stephen Harper, who is a church historian, who's intimately familiar with the historical documents and the historical data, 
he makes it crystal clear that he does not want to talk about the historical data. He does not want to refer you to the historical data. He is acknowledging that the historical data is problematic and is not helpful to resolving your concerns about church history. Here is a church historian working for the church in the church historian's office. And at, at no place in this entire interview does he say like, no, let's go to the data. Let's go look at the historical context. He is acknowledging at every turn with his words that the historical data only adds to the problem. And so I don't want to talk about it. I agree. It's a very simple question. So all she wants to know is, where should we go to look for resources so that we can study ourselves and figure out why it is that this issue in church history is really not damaging to our testimony? And he, yeah, he yeah, understands do what the question is. And his answer is, I'm not going to answer that question because there's no good answer to it. When the church historian's office and its employees do not want to talk about church history, do not want to point you towards church history, don't want to refer you to church history, don't want to offer solutions found within church history, you ought to recognize clearly that the data, the facts, the historical documents, and the context in which these events took place is not going to be helpful to your concerns. Not a bit. And he knows it. She doesn't, though. That's kind of the funny thing. That's what sort of makes this humorous to watch. Yeah, she is a th- She is assuming as he gives all these answers that all this just you know, fits and she doesn't have the wherewithal, the knowledge of church history, the experience with studying these things to recognize that he is deflecting at every single turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that should wrap up here. Part one. I hope people have enjoyed this. I've, I've had a lot of fun having this conversation with you again. We've got about half the interview to go. Uh, we're about an hour and 10 minutes or so in hour and 15 minutes in. Uh, I think people are really going to enjoy this conversation. Um, but uh, again, turn into, tune into part two and uh, check out where RFM and uh, Bill Real dissect the second half of this interview. Trust me, it doesn't get any better uh, for Stephen Harper and uh, this poor lady who's asking the questions. Yeah, I think ultimately the real question is going to be, how on earth was it the LDS Church allowed this piece to be released on its website? <laughs> and, and with that, we'll, we'll just close out this part one. Don't know much about history Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you If you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Don't know much about geography, don't know much trigonometry, don't know much about algebra, don't know what a slide rule is for.